Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And if we sound a little different today, it's because we're recording in the Red Lion. That's not because we've been drinking in the morning, but just because of the sound quality. Um, the Red Lion is a pub on Whitehall for, for the uninitiated. On today's New Statesman podcast, we're discussing the Labour shadow cabinet reshuffle. And you ask us, why do Conservative MPs still see Boris Johnson as a winner? So Keir Starmer's finally managed a successful reshuffle of his front bench. And actually, it was a pretty dramatic one, I thought. There was quite a few big moves. Yvette Cooper is back in the Shadow Cabinet as Shadow Home Secretary. Uh, David Lammy, Shadow Foreign Secretary. And Wes Streeting replaces John Ashworth as Shadow Health Secretary. And another big move is Lisa Nandy into the Shadow Leveling Up role to oppose Michael Gove. Um, what did you two make of the big moves? So parking one of the big moves, which we should discuss separately, I I thought the thing I found a bit surreal about this reshuffle was I thought both the people moved out, with the exception of Emily Thornberry, and the people moved in made sense. Not necessarily in terms of where they were actually moved in, right? So broadly, who have been the sort of most effective shadow ministers in terms of yeah, maximising the political space available to them, making the person they shadow not look as good as they otherwise would, right? In no particular order, it's um, Louise Haig, Wes Streeting, John Ashworth, and then who've been effective media sort of performers, Bridget Phillipson, Wes Streeting, Louise Haig, John Ashworth. And then Lisa Nandy, obviously, in like the weird non-job that is shadow foreign secretary, because you basically the leader makes all of the big choices on that. You are just like essentially like the roving like person with a job title too impressive for the broadcasters to turn down. So those are the people who I think it makes sense to have moved into kind of attack facing, you know, the stuff which will actually decide the next election. However, of those names, in terms of the things Kistam himself has prioritised and said, of those names, I think it's hard to make the case for the post any of those people have actually ended up in. In the Bridget Phillipson is on the record as having argued against tuition fees, something that Keir Starmer has on multiple occasions, including as recently as about a fortnight ago, spoken about the personal importance to him. Now, obviously, when the leader wants something and the shadow minister wants something, the leader gets it. But it does feel like a slightly unfortunate sort of wrinkle in that if West Streeting were the education secretary and Bridget Phillipson were the shadow health secretary, the question doesn't even arise, right? You don't even have the opportunity to make mischief with it. So, um, I mean, I think Louise Haig has shown both under Corbyn and under Starmer that she can make trouble for shadow ministers even in posts where it is not obvious that you can make hay. But even so, shadow transport is a post in which it is really not obvious and 
yeah, I'm sure John Ashworth will, will be effective at the DWP having been effective at health. But seeing as you could kind of fix all of those problems without making those moves, then you kind of have the weirdness of, you know, Nick Thomas Simons has not been an effective Shadow Home Secretary. Why would you move him to DIT, a post which is quite hard to make? Yeah, so the moves make sense. As you say, it was very effectively done. But yeah, it does feel kind of like a slightly weird kind of like the right names, but in slightly odd places. Alva, can you fill us in a bit about the sort of Ed Miliband demotion? He's had the sort of business part of his brief taken away. Mm, yeah, um, because we first picked up on this at Labour Party conference. Everyone was infamously falling out with Ed Miliband. And I suppose everyone has found that quite tricky. It's such an, an unusual situation to be in as Labour leader for Keir Starmer with another quite recent former Labour leader in your shadow cabinet quite experienced, quite a good media performer with lots of his own ideas and him, you know, clashing a little bit with with other people like Rachel Reeves on some issues. And so um, we were talking about this a little bit, Stephen, the other day and you think that he's kind of managed the Ed Miliband thing maybe quite well, whereas it is a bit of a, a, a snub to him, I suppose. And it just strikes me that Either that's a great idea or a terrible one, because if you want all of your policy decisions to be infused with a commitment to net zero, then in a way, the last thing you need is a department devoted just to that. I mean, you should have net zero testing within every department, and that should just be fundamental to the policy making rather than one person who's going to be sort of clashing with every brief on that. So I'm not really sure if the problems around... Ed Miliband completely go away. It's just like a little bit of a of a demotion for him. And I find the wording of the press releases from both Ed Miliband and Keir Starmer on that really funny because they use the word lead like a million times and you just feel like Ed Miliband, however they had originally written it, you just felt that Ed Miliband had been like, can we can we rewrite this to make me sound more authoritative, please? And so like, da, 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 this is the thing I will lead on. I'll be leading this, da, da, da. And that's the same wording that they used. Um, so I think it was sort of a demotion, but they tried to make it look like less of one. I think the thing which is interesting about it is that so much of the reshuffle is clearly built around continuing to accommodate Ed Miliband, right? In the Johnny Reynolds is probably one of a handful of Labour politicians who both likes doing the business outreach stuff, is politically close to Keir Starmer, is politically close and likes working with Ed Miliband and has like worked well with Ed Miliband and likes Rachel Reeves and has worked well with her. Now, I'm sure Johnny Reynolds will be a great Shadow Business Secretary. I think he's actually doing a great job as Shadow DWP and reassuring lots of stakeholders and all that important stuff. But really, the only reason to make that switch is partly because it's like, okay, who is the Shadow Business Secretary who is not going to, like, further compound the problem of Rachel and Ed having internal beef? There's an interesting sort of Whitehall sort of structure discussion we could have about whether or not it's a good idea to bring back the Department for Energy and Climate Change, which is de facto what the Ed Post does, which worked very well under Gordon Brown and worked out well in the coalition because the political importance of Ed and, and Gordon's relationship meant that it worked uh, under Gordon Brown. The political importance of climate change to the Lib Dems meant that it was, it, yeah, that the department was effective because it was so important to the Lib Dem rank and file that they were delivering stuff in that brief. But seeing as the main reason why um, Ed has had part of his portfolio taken away with him is that he has been slightly at odds with Annalise Dodds and slightly at odds with Rachel Reeves while they were respectively Shadow Chancellor, is having a post that he 
roams freely across the whole of departmental policy, which you have to do to do the deck job well, going to fix or, or heighten that problem? It's hard to tell. It is, on the other hand, a job, if it was a job in government, a job perfectly made for Ed Miliband, you know, expertise, political passions, interests. I feel that one is either like an accident waiting to happen or sort of like a kind of perfectly constructed dream job for Ed. And, and on that, I think it's probably worth explaining. I, don't, I think I was a bit more vague when I wrote about it originally, but like the origins of, of the row between Rachel Reeves and Ed Miliband before conference were obviously she made lots of big climate commitments in her speech at conference. And really it was an 11th hour argument over Ed Miliband wanting to have some policies of his own to announce. I think when people read it, they thought that it was Ed Miliband pushing to be extra green and Rachel Reeves pulling back, whereas it was more who was getting the credit for certain things and, and Ed Miliband maybe feeling like it wasn't fair that he didn't have anything to announce. And so I just, I think that specific problem, how does that go away if you have him in charge of sort of green policy? I'm not really sure. Um, but I also think maybe, I know you will maybe want to come on to Yvette Cooper, but I think maybe it's also worth dwelling on the promotions of Wes Streeting and Bridget Phillipson because we're very aware of them. And I think a lot of our listeners, you know, especially the closer Labour politics followers, will be very well aware of the two of them. But I suppose for a lot of people, this will be their introduction to the two of them. And in lots of ways, they're quite different, but there are lots of similarities between the two. And I think they're kind of both people to watch, like both people from the right of the Labour Party, both in their like late 30s to so kind of like the next generation coming through both from quite disadvantaged backgrounds and very bright and good communicators who went to Oxford and Cambridge respectively and have sort of risen through the ranks and their their styles are quite different I think but they're both people to watch I mean there's always this chat already about whether Wes Streeting is a future Labour leader which I think is you know, a correct question to ask, but also I think the same question could be applied to Bridget Phillipson. So we should just say to listeners now, like they're both people to watch because they are younger people coming through. Yeah, and I actually think with the Wes Streeting promotion, which is quite a big promotion because he was previously in sort of a role that, you know, you're not really shadowing anyone. It was shadow child se- child poverty secretary, I think, something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he's been moved into a big hitting position, particularly during a pandemic, shadow health. John Ashworth, you know, I do think a lot of people will have noticed John Ashworth on TV who perhaps don't follow close- politics closely in the past couple of years. So it's a, it's a big, big promotion for him. And I thought it showed a sign of confidence um, in Keir Starmer and his office because I remember sort of just before conference where Streeting did quite a high profile interview with the Times where he spoke a lot about his um, childhood and sort of quite extraordinary journey into politics and you had a bit of backbiting by some bitchy shadow cabinet secretaries kind of saying like oh you know (laughs) is is he making too much of it is it a bit overblown you know is he trying to manoeuvre so it shows a sign of confidence I think from a leader who can see that he can see the, the sort of backlash on the sides and think no I'm gonna you know give this person a chance who may well be my rival at some Mm. point in the future so I was quite impressed with that move and I think he will be really good but I wonder what you guys think of the um, accusations sort of more from the left or the soft left of the party that this is a move to the right for for the Labour Party under Starmer. I was up until really late that night on the phone with people worried about that 
it was more muted, I think, than people were expecting because it had been briefed to the Times that it would be quite a big move to the right. Mm -hmm. And everyone was kind of saying it wasn't as much of that as they had been expecting. And, uh, I mean, I think still most people are, like, broadly quite impressed by this reshuffle and accept that people who are good communicators have been promoted and people who weren't performing well have been demoted. But there was one person who I think was being quite fair about this. Someone from the soft left was saying, you know, I think leaner and meaner is what he's going for and that's what he's got. But <laughs> it'll, <laughs> But I think we also need to worry about the perception. And, you know, I'm not... Then, and they were saying that they weren't sure if this moved to the right, even if it's slight. They weren't sure if it was deliberate or not. They were saying, I'm not sure if he's been thinking much about the politics of it because it's more, I think, about competence than anything else. But it does it does sort of look that way. And so then, you know, other people from the soft left and the rest of the left were saying, you know, reminding me as a New Statesman journalist of where the median Labour member is and that maybe this shadow cabinet is a little bit to the right of the membership now on some issues and how, you know, they'll be... It's funny because I think the soft left doesn't sound that threatening, but they were, you know, they were saying like, oh, you will be watching closely to make sure that, <laughs> <laughs> that we that we hold to our values on, on certain issues. But broadly, I think still people feel like the new people coming in, especially someone like Peter Kyle, who's very much mm -hmm. from the right of the party, um, people were talking about him a lot, but still there's not that much desire to brief about people who've only just been given their positions. It's just a, a sort of a vague unease. I think the thing which is really interesting, right, is that broadly, in private, the criticism people will have of Keir Starmer is that they don't think he has politics. Now, many of them may think it's politically useful to, in public, go you know, he's a secret Blairite, he's moving the party to the right. But most of them, unquestionably, a shadow cabinet in which the three of the sort of rising hopes of people on the right of the party and Peter Carl entering the shadow cabinet for the first time, West Streeting and Bridget Phillips getting proper cabinet jobs. You know, obviously, you know, Shadow Chief Sec is, you know, something in the antechamber of the, the shadow cabinet and, you know, sorry, but... Shadow Secretary of State for Child Poverty is not a real job. So obviously it moves the Shadow Cabinet to the right, then you now have three of the sort of brightest hopes of the right of the party in those big jobs de facto. But I'm yet to meet anyone who really thinks that that is what the Keir Starmer reshuffle was controlling for, as it were. You know, it kind of the control variable here is who has like been effective and done well for us in the media, traumatised their opposite number. Now, I do think that has created some slightly perverse decision-making, and I'm going to once again bang on about shadow transport, right? And then I don't think Jim McMahon failed to make a splash because um, he wasn't a very effective shadow sh It's because broadly on transport policy, the uh, political gap between what Grant Shapps wants and what the Labour Party wants is so tiny then it's kind of sort of a non-job. And I'm not convinced and going, ah, I, I do think Louise Hayes is one of the most effective opposition front benches, but I don't think that you're going to get like the same level of cut through by moving that person into that role. But yeah, I think it's an interesting one in that people will basically say, yeah, the shadow cabinet is to the right, but their broad thing is they're like, does Keir see it that way? Has he sat down and gone, okay, what I want is X, and like as a result, I'm delivering... I mean, this is ultimately... The thing about this reshuffle, you alluded to when you said his first sort of successful one, right? This is ultimately like still a leadership project and basically has had to do like 
a mid-flight repair on its women and equalities team so that it can have the position it wants has had to do like a mid-flight repair on its shadow chancellor so it can have the political strategy it wants yeah that one was less about change policy less about strategy i think i would not be surprised if you once again had the kind of sequel of oh um the leader likes and his shadow cabinet is more effective than it was but the leader is not quite happy with how it is being more effective if that makes sense yeah definitely and i do think i understand why some people might have got that perception so yvette cooper is quite a good example she's the type of person who when you speak to certain conservative politicians or you know people outside of politics who perhaps lean to the right i was at a a breakfast at pwc recently and she was a name that came up you know i don't understand why they don't have her in the shadow cabinet you know she's the name that people mention sort of in those kind of circles so i can see why moving her back into the shadow home secretary role that that, you know she did do uh, under ed Miliband is sort of a move that would be seen to please those kind of people who have that perception but then you do have people like David Lammy as well who is on the right on many issues but he also presses that button which a lot of Remainer sort of voters in cities probably like you know he represents an inner city seat there's no end of sort of viral clips of him laying into racist listeners to LBC so he scratches that itch as well so I do think there is something for everyone there if you're a casual voter who's just sort of like occasionally tuning in. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. If you're enjoying The New Statesman podcast, you might also like The New Statesman's international news podcast, World Review, which is now published twice weekly. Here's our US editor, Emily Tamkin, to tell you more. Thanks, Anoush. That's right. Every Thursday, we unpack the most significant stories in world affairs, and every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Make sure you never miss an episode. Just search World Review in your podcast app and subscribe. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Us. So our question today asks, in recent articles, Stephen Bush has argued that Boris Johnson is still seen by Conservative MPs as an electoral asset. Why is this? And our questioner also asks why this is in the context of Rishi Sunak being the most popular politician in the country. Yeah, so this is a really good question. The question is like, well, look, you know, why won't Rishi Sunak do? Why, if you're a Conservative MP who has lots of concerns about how Downing Street operates, doesn't like all these heresies, are you not going, do you know what's wrong with the really popular Chancellor? Now, I think the slightly weird feature of Conservative politics at the moment is that the most popular politician in the country visibly doesn't like the reason why he's popular. And every time he does things that are more like what he wants, he becomes less popular. Pretty sure if you, you're wired Rishi Sunak after a lie detector, um, I was about to say after a few drinks, but obviously he, he doesn't drink. Well, after a few you know, pints of Mexican Coke, 
I think he would probably just go, actually, look, I, I feel I was slightly mugged by my officials in the first couple of weeks in the job. Uh, I don't like where we've ended up on this. I'm uncomfortable with how we're using our headroom. I wanted to, you know, keep some of it aside for taxes, etc., etc. So I think there's this weird thing where I think there's still a kind of wait-and-see element of is this guy's popularity built on sand? And also, in terms of his constituency, yeah, the constituency he's sort of trying to build in the party, which is basically the sort of, it doesn't have to be like this, you know, we can go back to being something a bit more like what we were before Brexit. The problem he has isn't because he's he's lost so many of the sort of fights about it in government, people go like, okay, yeah, you, you believe this, but are you a deliverer in the way that, say, Liz Truss is a deliverer? And that's kind of why, even though, and so then it just becomes a who's more popular, and people go like, okay, well, Boris is popular, and we feel Boris is more movable. So yeah, I mean, I think it's conceivable that you have a situation where that changes and suddenly Rishi is out, out front of the pack in terms of the next leadership speculation. But at the moment, there's just a kind of sort of theory that like it's a bit insubstantial and then his popularity is artificial. And I suppose Rishi Sunak is just a bit more of a conventional politician in that he's popular at the moment, but he's only quite recently been introduced to the public and he is becoming less popular all the time. Whereas, I suppose, without buying too much into the mythology around Boris Johnson, I think there is just this feeling of him being a bit like Teflon, that things just, things just sort of don't stick to him, and him having a slightly magical politician equality where he can win in a way that maybe just a, like a more conventional conservative, making conservative arguments that the conservative membership likes, that maybe wouldn't cut with the public in the same way. Because I feel like... Conservatives talk much more about Boris Johnson being a winner than they do about why, which is why this is an interesting question. And um, I think we've kind of tried to articulate it a bit before, and it's sort of a feel-good factor, and the fact that you know he he doesn't pretend to be someone who you know has meticulously prepared a speech and who's you know a serious man of integrity who will always deliver on his word. You know, I think he he kind of leans into those things that makes him a slightly more complex politician but people weirdly feel like they know where they stand with him because he's not promising to always deliver on his promises people kind of know I think there's a real worry that if they got rid of this incredibly popular leader that they wouldn't win again and I, I think that that calculation still hasn't shifted things would need to get a lot worse for the conservatives I mean we're sitting here recording it in the red line right right across from Downing Street where that you know Christmas party may or may not have <laughs> <laughs> that may or may not have broken some rules took place last Christmas but I think that um things would still need to get quite a bit worse before people within the party actually wanted to dislodge this pretty popular man no i agree i think it's i think one of his um sort of one of the things people hate him the most for is one of his greatest strengths which is this kind of stuff that could bring down or break the resolve of another politician doesn't seem to touch him so the christmas party story for example he'll probably get through that and mm. there's been so many examples of that in the past it was really interesting when we spoke to thangam debonair the shadow mm. leader of the house last episode when she was quite honest when we asked her you know is this Labour's moment you know amid all of the sleaze scandal and she was basically saying 
you know, we thought that it would be our moment with the illegal prorogation of Parliament. We thought it would be our moment with all of those tight votes on Brexit and various other things. But, you know, if anything, it made the Conservatives more successful. She was quite honest about that. So I think there is a feeling sort of among Boris Johnson's opponents that that is one of his strengths. And even when you, I don't know about you two, but even when you speak to people in the Labour Party, so I spoke to a shadow cabinet member recently who was basically saying about the recent shift in the polls, she didn't think it was down to um, the Sleaze scandal and just put it down to kind of politics as usual, coming back sort of kind of post-pandemic, although, of course, the um, balance has kind of changed with the new variant now in terms of how normal politics is. The Conservative MPs who dislike him the most do do still know that that's one of his strengths. And some of it's being chipped away, especially with the political decisions that he's making that people don't like, like raising taxes. But there's no real evidence yet that that strength is being diminished. Yeah, in some ways... It's a bit like IBM, right? For a long, long time, there are lots of people like, look, if you just buy IBM stocks and it'll be fine. And this continued long past the point when IBM was no longer really investing in the future and things were going a bit wrong. But this is the thing is ultimately for a long time from a conservative perspective saying, oh, Boris will win for us is the equivalent of going buy IBM. And it probably take an awful lot of events, just it took an awful lot of events for IBM to finally kind of go, for Boris Johnson to go in the... Um, in the eye. So this is why this is such a good question. Very few people get me to make weird childlike noises on the, on the <laughs> podcast in the Red Lion. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Kellyan, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out. Why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community... Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.